Thanks for being part of Parkside Green's Bible Study. Uh, Pastor Steve here inviting you to join me this week in considering the roles of learning, praying, and doing in the Christian life. Over the centuries, uh, people have contrasted the contemplative life of learning and praying with the active life of doing. Some of us, I think, are just more naturally active doers, and others of us are more naturally contemplative learners and prayers. Jesus has plenty to teach all of us, so let's launch right in. Luke 10.25 tells us that a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This guy sounds like the, the active doer type, right? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds by asking the lawyer, well, what's written in the Old Testament law? You're an expert in the law, a lawyer. How do you read it? He answers correctly from Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. In fact, the lawyer appears to actually quote these two key commandments from memory. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer's answer is spot on, right? Because we know elsewhere Jesus identifies these as the two greatest commandments in the law. So this man's head knowledge is perfect, but there's a problem in his heart. Jesus challenges the lawyer not just to know the law, but to do the law, to actively love God with his whole being and to actively love his neighbor as himself. Jesus says, do this and you will live. And that's when we find out what's really going on with this man. Not only had the lawyer been testing Jesus in verse 25, but he wanted to justify himself, as it says in verse 29. Most Jewish teachers at this time understood neighbor to mean fellow Israelite, or maybe even fellow Israelite within my sect of Israel. But the commandment actually goes beyond loving fellow Israelites to loving foreigners as well. Leviticus 19.34 says, You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The lawyer wrongly wanted to draw a boundary around the term neighbor that would justify him as a law keeper. And that's what prompts Jesus to tell the famous story, which we know is the story or parable of the Good Samaritan. A man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho was mugged by robbers who left him bloody and half dead on the side of the road. And when a priest and Levite saw the victim, they passed by on the other side, right? No help at all. But then a Samaritan saw the man and had compassion. And this Samaritan definitely seems like an active doer. Going to the man, binding up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, putting the victim on his own animal, bringing him to an inn, caring for him at the end, leaving the innkeeper two days of wages, that's like the equivalent of two to three hundred dollars maybe today, to care for the man, and even promising 
to repay the innkeeper for any additional expenses he might incur caring for him. There is a lot packed in to Jesus' story, and, and perhaps you know the background that who Samaritans were, right? They were the poor people who remained in northern Israel, the territory of Samaria, after the exile to Assyria. And they, over the years, intermarried with foreign Gentiles. More purebred Jews despised and avoided Samaritans, who they viewed as kind of like half-breeds. As it says in John 4, 9, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So when Jesus portrays the Jewish religious leader, the priest and Levite, negatively, and he portrays the Samaritan positively, he is calling out their, their ethnic or racial prejudice. Now, Jesus doesn't see Samaritans as people to be judged, like James and John did. Remember, they wanted to call down fire from heaven on that Samaritan village. No, Jesus sees them as people to be evangelized. In fact, in Acts 1.8, Jesus will tell his disciples to witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, which happens in Acts 8 with Philip and Acts 9 with others. So anyway, with that background in mind, we can imagine what is running through this lawyer's head and his heart when Jesus asks him, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Jesus never directly answered the question of, who is my neighbor? Do you notice that? Because in a sense, it's the wrong question. The lawyer had been asking, who qualifies for my love? which sort of assumes that some people don't, that some people are non-neighbors. In a sense, the lawyer, remember he wanted to justify himself, he had been asking, who is not my neighbor? Who can I not treat with neighborly love while still seeing myself as a good law keeper who will inherit eternal life? <laughs> but Jesus's question is, who proved to be a neighbor? It's not about whether a person qualifies as a neighbor whom I should love, but whether I qualify as a loving neighbor. Real love then doesn't ask for limits, whom must I love? Real love asks for opportunities, who can I love? And Jesus's story implies that anyone in need is our neighbor whom we can love and should love. Like the Samaritan, we, we should sacrificially go out of our way, as he does, to love all people, especially those who are in need, whom God brings across our paths, regardless of ethnic or religious differences. I wondered to myself, in our context today, 21st century U.S., would the surprising hero have been a Russian Muslim, something shocking like the Samaritan of that day? I don't know, but I do know the lawyer can't even bring himself to choke out the answer, the Samaritan. But he does concede that the one who showed mercy is the one who actually proved to be a neighbor. And remember, the whole conversation had started out with the lawyer wanting to know what to do. So Jesus tells him, go and do what the Samaritan did. Now, at this point, we might be thinking that following Jesus is all about doing, right? The, the Samaritan did what the priest and Levite did not do. 
But that's not the whole story, as we'll learn from our second section, Martha and Mary. As Jesus and his followers went on their way on this journey to Jerusalem, he entered a village, which we know from John 11.1 and John 12.1 was the village of Bethany. And there's a woman named Martha who welcomed Jesus into her house. Martha's sister, Mary, sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. And many see Mary as representing the contemplative life, right? The quiet one, a listening and learning from Jesus. By contrast, Martha, the hostess, was distracted with much serving until finally Martha had had enough of this solo work and she approaches Jesus and says to him, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. <laughs> Order her to lend me a hand to get up and do her share of the work. But the Lord answered her tenderly, I think, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. You're getting yourself all worked up, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Mary's chosen what's truly essential, the good portion, the main dish, in a sense, of our meal together. What Mary is taking in from me will not be taken away from her. Putting these two stories together, the story of the Good Samaritan shows us that there is a time to actively serve others, like with the half-dead mugging victim, right? There, there's a time for dressing wounds and active caretaking. And Jesus' interactions with Martha and Mary show us there's a time to sit and learn from the Lord. Because when Jesus, the Lord, three times he's called the Lord, is teaching, it's time to listen and learn. It's not that Martha was wrong to be an active doer, but she was wrong to be distracted and anxious and troubled by temporal tasks when the eternal Lord was sharing spiritual food there in her home. Following Jesus, then, is not just about serving him, but also receiving from him. And the contemplative life is marked not just by listening to and learning from God, but also talking to God, praying. Luke 11 tells us that Jesus was once more praying in a certain place, and when he had finished praying, one of his disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, just like John had taught his disciples. And that may be the cry of our hearts as well, right? Lord, teach us to pray. And thankfully, in our third section, Jesus graciously gave his followers, both then and now, a perfect pattern for prayer, a model prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. The prayer here in Luke, it's shorter than the, the version in Matthew, takes about 20 seconds to pray, but it covers great things and small things, spiritual things and material things, inward things and outward things. It's very simple, but also extremely comprehensive. 
structurally, we notice that God and his kingdom come first. You see how it starts with God's name and God's kingdom in verse 2, and then humans and our needs come second in verses 3 and 4. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. Lead us not into temptation. And I know this pattern helps me when I follow it. When I start out with God and his kingdom first, before getting to me and my needs second. And when we pray, Jesus says that his followers can approach the God of the whole universe with confidence and trust because he is our Father, our Heavenly Father. We pray to God with faith and affection as our Father. God's name be hallowed. God's name represents all that God is, including his holy character. So we pray that God's name might be hallowed, be treated as holy or reverenced. We want to always speak of God with proper reverence and to live in a holy way that hallows his name. Also, we pray for God's kingdom to come, for, for God's rule and reign to be fully established. That's what we long for, isn't it? And that's what we're called to pray for, that God's kingdom would come in its full power and glory. And then we move to the first request. Give us each day our daily bread. You notice the prayers for basic physical necessities, the bread we need this day. And you notice too, it's not an individual prayer. Give me this day my daily bread. Rather, it's a corporate prayer for God to give us this day our daily bread, which perhaps expresses our own openness then to being part of God's answer for others' needs this day. Sort of like the sharing of basic resources that we see in the book of Acts. You remember when there was not a needy person among them? Everybody, they had a distribution of bread they shared. And forgive us our sins. We pray to our Father, not only as his children, but also as sinners who are in need of forgiveness, which is exactly what God provides for us in his Son, Jesus Christ. And as those who are forgiven, we commit ourselves to forgiving everyone who's indebted to us, to, to forgiving those who sin against us. So we pray as sinners who are in need of forgiveness, and we pray with truly forgiving hearts toward others who sin against us. Lastly, we pray, lead us not into temptation. None of us, none of us is above yielding to temptation. So we need to pray for God to supply us with spiritual protection. It, it means something like, uh, let us not sin when we are tested or Perhaps preserve us from temptation that would bring us under its sway and cause us to fall. Jesus teaches us to pray with an awareness of our spiritual vulnerability and weakness. We need, then, God's daily provision. We need God's daily pardon. We need God's daily protection. That's Jesus' model prayer for us. And Jesus follows it up in our last section with two parables on prayer. A commentator summarizes the first parable this way. The time is midnight. 
The setting is probably a small town where everyone knows everyone else. A friend traveling in the evening arrives at a very late hour, and there's nothing to give to the one who's probably hungry from his long journey. So he calls on a neighbor to share three loaves of bread. And at first the neighbor says he cannot get up, which really means he doesn't want to get up. Uh, but then, not because they're friends, but because of the requester's impudence in the ESV, persistence in the NAS, or boldness in the NIV, he rises and gives him whatever he needs. There's a sort of a shameless audacity on the part of the requester here, which teaches us something about prayer. Jesus is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. Uh, if such and such is true with humans, how much more so with God? Right? If a grumpy friend roused from sleep at night fulfills the request of a neighbor in difficulty, even though the whole family must be disturbed, how much more will God be willing to act? So ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. God gives willingly to his children who ask him. Now, Jesus is not saying in this parable that if we nag God enough, he'll come through for us. Rather, his point is, if a cranky neighbor will give you the bread you ask for, how much more will God, your loving Father, give you the things you need if you have the sense to ask him? And similarly, in the second parable, no ordinary human father, what, what father among you? And the best of them are far from perfect, right? In fact, Jesus says they're evil. Uh, they wouldn't play a trick on their son by giving him something dangerous or harmful like a, a snake or a scorpion when the son asks for something good like a fish or an egg. So how much more then our good heavenly father above who promises to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. 1 Thessalonians 4.8 says, God gives his Holy Spirit to you. And we also read about that in 1 John chapter 3 and chapter 4. As we back up then and look at the big picture, we can see that there is a place for the active life of doing. And there is a place for the contemplative life of learning and praying. In fact, ideally, I think, an active life for the Lord flows out from a contemplative life with the Lord. An active life for the Lord flows out of a contemplative life with the Lord. Learning, praying, and doing go together. We're called to learn at the feet of Jesus. We're called to pray as Jesus taught us. We're called to love all our neighbors, to care for those in need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for the riches of your word. We're grateful that as we learn from Jesus, that that good portion won't be taken from us. We want to love you and to love all people, especially those you bring across our path. Father, we pray that your name would be hallowed, your kingdom come, Give us each day our daily bread, and 
Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Through your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.